section fifty three of the world war this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org the world story volume fifteen the world war edited by horatio w dresser section fifty three the machines nineteen sixteen by william j robinson when the british blockade was tightening its coils about germany a sigh of relief went up from the entente powers and their press proclaimed that with gasoline and rubber cut off from the enemy the war would soon come automatically to an end i am not concerned with the failure of these prophecies to reckon with german chemical ingenuity they merely throw light on the interesting fact that modern warfare with its demand for swift striking movement in every branch of the complicated military organism could not exist without the motor vehicle in its various forms through the illustrated weeklies and the moving pictures americans have become familiar with the skoda howitzers taken to pieces for travel rumbling along behind great mercedes traction motors they have seen the london motor buses loaded to bursting with grinning tommies on their way to the front flaunting beauville and nestle's food signs against an unfamiliar background of canals and serried poplar trees they cannot realize however because they have not witnessed with their own eyes the vast orderly ferment of wheeled traffic that fills the roads on both sides of that blackened blasted battle-line between the armies of western europe where once the task of fulfilment fell to straining horse-flesh the burden is now laid on wheels winged by gasoline from the flashing wire spokes of the dispatch rider's motor-cycle to the clanking crushing feet of the caterpillar tractor that pulls the big guns into action the incredibly complicated machinery of war is now dependent on an element which at the time of the spanish-american war was unknown to military use it was chance which got me into the british army it was also by chance that i was attached to the staff of a captain of the fifth dragoon guards and sent off to belgium five days after my enlistment without the usual weary months of training in the riding school on october eighth nineteen fourteen our regiment landed at ostend this was the beginning of thirteen months of service during which i passed from my regular duties in the dragoon guards to the army service corps as motor-driver to general bing and was subsequently attached to the headquarters staff of the fifth army corps while in this i saw service in an armored car of the royal naval air service went into action with the motor machine-gun section and also acted as a dispatch rider this enabled me to get a fairly good first-hand idea of the use made by the british army of the various types of motor vehicle and if some of my experiences left me in doubt as to the ability of the human nervous system to stand up under the racking killing pace demanded by these branches of the service 
i came away from my term at the front full of admiration for the men behind the organization which is responsible for the smooth functioning of the motor vehicle wing of the british army my first good opportunity to see this great system in action came shortly after my arrival at the front near zillebeke where while waiting for assignment to duty we watched the supplies coming through fresh supplies vast quantities of them arrive every day from the various seaports brought on trains which deposit them at the railhead or private railway station with which every army army corps and division is provided the trains are met by motor lorries or trucks which swing into the yards range up in long lines alongside the freight cars load up and pull away again in surprisingly short time as they drew out of the yards i noticed that they fell automatically into little groups and on inquiry found that before the column is formed all lorries containing a certain kind of supplies go in one group lining up until in an orderly arrangement of say twelve trucks of meat ten trucks of bread so many trucks of clothing groceries petrol mechanical stores and so on until a column consisting of perhaps one hundred lorries stands ready to start toward the front the order given off they go to the clatter of chains and open exhausts the roads of belgium were once good roads but the endless stream of heavy traffic has reduced them to a fearful condition despite the efforts of the royal engineers and jack ward's battalions the large semi-military force of navies and labourers recruited in london by a patriotic contractor for just such badly needed work as highway repairing down the middle of these roads runs a strip of cobblestones greasy full of holes but still cobblestones on either side there is mud a slough of despond for the unwary driver many a time in winter i have seen lorries so hopelessly stuck that it is impossible to get them out for the moment all that can be done is to transfer the load to another car and leave the derelict by the roadside to the tender mercies of the salvage companies or the nearest portable mechanical transport workshop before going to the front i never so much as thought of the problem of caring for the great number of cars that are disabled in the day's run so that i was surprised to find what thorough high-class work is done by these portable workshops mounted on lorry chassis they present the appearance of box-cars the sides of which in service are lowered to a horizontal position and serve as platforms for the crew to stand on when manipulating the lathe or dynamo inside power is furnished by a special gasoline motor the mechanics employed in these workshops are all highly trained men who are obliged to pass the most severe tests before they are accepted for this branch of the service most of them have been building cars in england and they are often allowed to specialize on the make with which they are most familiar if an automobile is beyond the help of these first-aid specialists it is immediately sent to one of the depots where there is a permanent workshop and another vehicle is sent up to the front to take its place no cars are kept running if they are not in first-class condition and every precaution is taken to avoid accidents due to defective machines practically all makes of cars are to be seen at the front each kind is assigned to the work to which it is best adapted the fast cars generally speaking being used for dispatch work 
and also for carrying officers to and from the firing line the steadier cars find their niche in ambulance work and other duties where speed is a secondary matter these details i noted down in the impersonal way of the cavalryman who is supposed to be concerned with other matters while we were still at Zillabeki, however the driver of general bing's car was killed and as i knew there was a shortage of competent drivers i made the somewhat irregular request to take his place this was granted to my surprise and pleasure for i had heard that all our untrained men were shortly to be sent back to england to finish their course at the riding school although i had had considerable experience in driving cars at home i was glad that the general was partial to slow going and objected strenuously to being bumped this enabled me to lead up gradually to the more severe demands that were made on me when shortly after i was attached to the headquarters staff of the fifth army corps here i was treated to my first and only ride into action with an armoured car the armoured car is unquestionably the most wicked-looking thing at the front and its lines its whole appearance give the suggestion of an unlimited capacity for slaughter the entire body of the car is made of finest sheet steel nearly half an inch thick in the place of the tonneau there is a revolving steel turret mounting a rapid-fire gun or a three-pounder the engine is protected by the same quality of armor as the body and the vulnerable radiator finds safety behind two steel doors which when the car goes into action are adjusted so as to leave a small opening for the circulation of air an apron of steel extends round the wheels to within a foot of the ground guarding as far as possible the pneumatic tires however in spite of this precaution and the use of double tires on each wheel i've seen cars come limping home with all eight tires flat the crew of an armoured car is a variable quantity but there are always two drivers it was the lack of a spare driver that led to my being ordered one day to sit beside the man at the wheel of a car that was just going into action in case anything had happened to him i should have had to take his place as he drew into the zone of the enemy's fire the bullets began to hit our car first scatteringly then in a regular shower coming at the rate of a hundred a minute and beating a devil's tattoo on our armour the din made by bullets on this steel plating is amazing it sounds as if some one were striking with a hammer and striking hard too i did not know that so far as the ordinary rifle bullet is concerned these armoured cars are practically invulnerable and i expected any moment to find the metal giving way under the shock we were in action only about ten minutes but in that short time the terrific noise of our own gun and the scoring bullets the heaving and lurching of the car the semi-darkness and worst of all my own inactivity almost broke my nerve there was absolutely nothing to do but sit still and receive new sensations and the unpleasantness of these was indescribable when we finally got back to safety i climbed out and took a look at the car expecting to find it pockmarked and dented beyond recognition except for a few small depressions in the armour and a couple of holes through the mudguards where pieces of shrapnel had struck there was scarcely a trace of our ordeal by fire not a single bullet had penetrated the armoured car gives unlimited opportunities for the exercise of nerve and initiative and no man in the war availed himself of these 
more fully than the famous commander sampson of the royal navy air service this officer for whose capture dead or alive the germans were reported to have offered twenty thousand marks was equally at home in an aeroplane or an armoured car i've never seen him at work as an aviator but the town in which we had our headquarters was the starting-place for his amazing trips in his car just where he went and how he got there is more or less of a mystery all we knew was that at four o'clock in the morning or thereabouts commander sampson would leave Haysbrook and hours later come rolling back into the square almost invariably with a batch of german prisoners his arrival at headquarters was the event of the day every one in sight would come rushing forward to see what sort of game he had bagged from the stories that followed these exploits he must have taken his car right into the german lines a feat which was as dangerous as you please but not literally impossible few people seemed to realize that many of the highways leading across country and connecting the hostile lines had not then been destroyed they were formidably guarded by barbed wire barricades and their surface was torn and pitted by shell holes but neither side was willing to eliminate a means of communication which would be of vast value in case of an advance these are the roads that commander sampson must have used on his swift trips of destruction on the front of his car was a formidable arrangement of upright scythe-like wire-cutters strong enough to rip through the entanglements and bunt the wooden supporting posts out of the way and with these backed by the momentum of the ponderous car he forced his way on steel-studded tires through barbed wire and shot and shell and accomplished the impossible not once but again and again his car would come back looking as though it had been through a thousand years of war but the occupants were generally safe and sound and as i say they had things to show that they had given the germans cause to regret receiving a visit from commander sampson so far as i am aware no one has yet come forward to claim that reward of twenty thousand marks it was not long after my outing in the armored car that i was detailed to duty in the motor-cycle machine-gun section as motor-cycle driver the machines used in this work are much lighter and smaller than the american type they carry a side-car attachment but in place of the familiar wife-killer a rapid-fire gun is mounted and the comfortable cushioned seat gives way to a wooden affair so small that the gunner practically holds his rapid-firer in his lap on his right is the box with the loaded belts of ammunition when he threads these through the gun and starts firing the belt uncoils smoothly and falls into an empty box on the other side of the machine i was almost ignorant of the workings of this section when our battery of four machines first went into action and when after the rush and clatter of getting into position my gunner began to pour streams of bullets into the enemy's lines directing the aim like the spray of water from a hose i sat stupidly upright in my saddle fully exposed to a hot fire from the germans it was sheer luck that carried me through unhurt until an officer hurrying past told me in a few short crisp words what sort of a fool i was then i dropped down full length on the ground beside my machine until it was time to retire watching my gunner a seasoned soldier sitting there in his little seat unprotected and unconcerned working his machine without even taking his old clay pipe from his mouth the second time i took one of these machines into action near ypres things went much better we went up in the dark 
and some time before we were needed we were given our position in a ditch with our gun covering a road our orders were simply to fire when the germans tried to rush that road for several hours we waited in the strain of uncertainty but not a sign of fritz although we could hear the other guns along the line in action suddenly they attacked it was a terrible sight they seemed to rise from the ground in thousands my gunner had his machine working on them at the first sign and the germans coming on in waves seemed to melt away before our fire i never saw men die so quickly before they went down by hundreds and still they came on trampling over their own dead those germans are extremely brave men there is no other word for it when their rush was checked and they had retired we held our position for a while longer returning to headquarters by evening we had been in the firing line for hours and not once had our situation been dangerous my last experience with the motor machine-gun section came during the fierce fighting around hill sixty where records were made that still remain records after long months of war for two days before the action came off we knew there was something in the wind although no definite orders had been given our mining and tunneling companies had been working for some time a general concentration of artillery was taking place in the neighbourhood finally the attack took place for thirty-five minutes ninety-two batteries rained shells from their three hundred and sixty-eight cannon on the bit of rising ground known as hill sixty a withering scorching fire which stopped as suddenly as it began off went the mines we had laid under the hill the earth shook the air was filled with thick clouds of mingled dirt and smoke instantly our men were out of the trenches advancing at a dead run while our machine-gunners poured steel into the german positions until the progress of our troops made this dangerous it was all over in a few minutes and although we were called for once again this was the last action in which i served with the m m g s motorcycling even with the best of roads is an exhausting business in the long run and when i was designated for dispatch riding i knew enough of the details of the work not to be overjoyed the dispatch rider must first and foremost be speedy a leather case crammed with virtually important documents or empty for all the rider knows is strapped to his shoulder and from that moment his one thought must be to deliver that case to his destination in the shortest order possible if the writer comes to grief he can commandeer the first man he meets but the dispatches must be delivered at all costs as i said i was not over-eager for this new work but my feelings in the matter were not consulted my first trip took me from the brigade headquarters to the divisional headquarters farther back it was dark night when i started the roads were all shelled to pieces and as no lights could be carried i simply had to take chances on the shell holes i had not been gone three minutes when i felt the ground drop away beneath me and i went flying over the handlebars my knees and elbows were skinned but the machine was uninjured so off i started again at first i tried to be careful i soon realized however that i should be losing precious time all i could do then was to shoot ahead in the blackness trusting to luck two or three more tumbles came my way on that ride and by the time i got down to headquarters i was stiff and sore beyond belief i handed in my dispatch case and then after an hour off duty i had to return over the same road it can easily be seen that the light british motorcycles are infinitely superior to the heavy american machines for this rough-and-tumble work if one of these latter ever fell on the rider 
the chances are that his leg would be broken and he in all probability severely burned by the heated engine as he lay beneath it the number of motorcycles put out of action at the front is astounding during the second battle for calais alone a dispatch rider in our corps lost fourteen machines he carried dispatches through the thick of this fighting and was never so much as scratched a remarkable record for statistics show that during the first months of the war fifty per cent of the riders sent to france were killed generally speaking the branch of the motor vehicle service most to my liking was driving a staff car and luckily i had more of this work to do than anything else a staff driver has a car to himself and as a rule works entirely with one officer he has complete charge of the care of the car anyone else caught driving it is punished for disobeying orders when he takes control of his car he signs a receipt for the car and the tools lamps tires and accessories that go with it for all these things he is personally responsible and if anything happens to them through his carelessness he is obliged to make good the loss the staff driver's life is no sinecure he is liable for duty practically twenty-four hours each day and carries a heavy burden of responsibility for the good condition of his car and the welfare of his officers with all this however there goes a latitude of personal initiative and a continual possibility of new and interesting work that made a strong appeal to me it was while i was driving a staff car in flanders last summer that i was ordered to take three officers to the little village of kemmel a short distance southwest of ypres this place was almost always under fire and at one time had been in german hands in the possession of the crown prince as a matter of fact when they were occupying the place we shelled it when we drove them out and took the village they began shelling and have kept it up ever since it was what is known as unhealthy ground as we turned from the main highway into the road leading to kemmel i noticed two sentries at the crossing but they merely saluted and allowed us to pass i can only account for this failure of the sentries to warn us of what lay ahead by the fact that i was driving staff officers who are allowed to pass unhindered anywhere the road to kemmel leads up a long hill the top of which must be reached before one comes in sight of the village itself lying in a little valley between mont kemmel and mont noir at the bottom of a long downgrade as we took the hill going up i had an uneasy feeling that all was not right although nothing out of the way had been seen except those two sentries we were going at a rapid clip and as we shot over the brow of the hill we ran right past the post of german artillery observers they were in a windmill and i think they were as much surprised as we i shall never forget my feeling of cold helplessness as i realized what sort of a trap we had put our heads in needless to say i made that car fairly fly down the hill to the village and we had hardly got there before shells began to drop around us there was nothing to do but pop down into the cellar of a brewery one of the few buildings that were not completely wrecked it was about two o'clock in the afternoon when we got there and for three hours we were in that cellar shells pouring into the village all the time it was a miserable filthy hole half full of rotten potatoes the floor deep in slimy mud and the ceiling so low that we could not stand upright anywhere there was nothing to do but lie there in the dirt while the germans tried their best to blow the place up i kept wondering what our car would look like when the bombardment let up it seemed impossible that it should escape yet when twilight came and the shells finally stopped bursting we crawled out of our cellar into the ruins of a brewery 
and found that the car had suffered no vital damage it was half full of bricks and debris there were holes through the body and the hood it was dented and scarred almost beyond recognition the engine however was untouched and i finally got it going the sound of its whirring sweet music in our ears we were now confronted by the trip back over that same hill there was no other way to get out of the place the germans knew this as well as we did and they were certain to have some sort of surprise waiting for us a blockaded road or machine-guns perhaps both we felt our way slowly out of the rubble-filled street of the village and once on the highway i took as long a run as possible for the hill giving the car every ounce of power that was in her lights were not to be thought of of course and as it was almost pitch dark i drove ahead blindly and trusted to luck to keep us on the road we took the hill magnificently and to our unending surprise the car flew over the summit without a single thing happening evidently the possibility of our escaping alive from the ruined village had not occurred to the germans this was as close a call as ever i had there was no lack of excitement however when i was caught with an officer in the city of ypres at the beginning of the bombardment preceding the second battle for calais we were at the farther side of the city when the shells began to fall and as we had come up on horses there was no way for us to get through i hunted round and presently came across a car a wretched specimen still it could be called a car it had once been an ambulance but the body had been destroyed and replaced by a couple of rough bucket seats built from bacon boxes such as it was it was a lucky find and i seized on it at once after some difficulty i got the engine running haltingly and brought the car round to where my officer was waiting we started off immediately by this time the shells were bursting in and around the grand place at the rate of forty a minute and our chance of getting through at all was a long one i worked up speed as fast as i could so that by the time we got to the square we were doing between thirty and forty miles an hour in the square itself conditions were indescribable the buildings were crumbling on all sides the air was filled with smoke and flame and dust to say nothing of flying fragments of shell and bricks and it was impossible to see more than a few yards ahead it seemed incredible that we could get through i slackened speed my officer must have felt much as i did but he rapped out drive like hell and huddled down into his bacon box seat his head held low i threw open the throttle the car choked a bit then responded with a leap the steel-studded tires striking streams of sparks from the cobbles my hands were more than full with the steering as one leaves the square there comes a very sharp turn and i dared not think what would happen when we reached this at the speed we were going it was impossible to twist the car round that corner yet it would be suicide to slow down i had read of the trick of racing drivers who skidded round hairpin turns and i decided to try this as our only chance the turn loomed up before us in the smoke and i opened the throttle still wider just as we reached the corner i twisted the wheel slightly and jammed on the foot brake with all my might the skidding stud squealed as the rear end of the car shot over i felt her tip a little as the two outside wheels came off the ground she righted at once though and in a moment we were safely through if i had had time to examine those bacon-box seats i don't think i should have dared to carry out my little manoeuvre it is still a mystery to me how they held under the fearful strain of rounding that corner with this trip fresh in my mind i should gladly have dispensed with another visit to ypres but my wishes in the matter were not consulted when later on in the progress of this same bombardment preceding the second battle for calais 
i was ordered to take an officer from headquarters to the village of patitsa to reach this village there was no way to avoid passing through ypres and the city was still under such terrific fire that getting across seemed almost hopeless we made our start about nine o'clock in the morning and in a short while we were in the zone of fire heading for ravaged ypres portions of which were in flames it happened that in front of us was another car containing two canadian officers a captain and a colonel if i remember correctly which when we swung into the section of straight road leading into the city had perhaps a hundred yards start of us we were both going along at a brisk clip when a shell a big one burst close beside the car in front completely smothering it in dust and heavy smoke even to us the concussion was terrific i stopped at once and waited to see what had happened when the smoke lifted the canadian officer's car was revealed to us turned almost around on the road by the swirl of the explosion as we came up we found that the running parts of their car were intact but the windshield and both of the rear doors had been carried away the mud guards were torn about and in the tonneau the headless body of one of the officers was crumpled up in a swiftly forming pool of blood the other officer who had been sitting in the front seat was horribly wounded in the head and side he had been flung across the driver who although spattered over with his companion's blood was unhurt and insisted on driving back with us to la meretinga supporting the body of his officer i shall never forget the man's white face smeared with crimson or the look of his staring eyes i shall never forget the tone of his voice as he cried to the orderly who came rushing out of the field ambulance at blamertinga for god's sake take this thing away it was simply good luck that brought me unharmed through these experiences the vast majority of men who survived the ordeal of this war will have only their good luck to thank personal initiative a cool head a quick hand do count but never before has the factor of bravery been of so little avail to the man in the fighting line mere human flesh no matter what its fibre seems to stand no chance in the clash and welter of mechanical forces that science has let loose over the battlefields of to-day romance in the old high sense of the word has almost vanished but such traces of it as remain are found to their fullest extent perhaps in the aviation and motor-car divisions of the modern army here the man is most nearly his own master here he has the best chance to show of what stuff he is made it is interesting to think that some of the oldest and most appealing qualities of warfare have found their reincarnation as it were in the latest developments of the military art End of section fifty three this recording is in the public domain